podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's got to 2-2 and we've still got more than half an hour to go and here's Ozil. Lacazette. Ozil! Go! Hello and welcome to another Touchy Gooners podcast. It's your boy Dan Coogs on hosting duty today. And I've got Sean with me. How are you doing, Sean? Yeah, all good, all good. Thank you, man. Yeah, yeah, and today we're joined by a very special guest. Um, None other than Mr. Ben Jacobs, who's been hitting us with all those transfer exclusives and transfer updates uh, throughout the start of this uh, transfer window. Um, and it's it's looking to be, you know, quite an active window. I think, you know, it's looking like it's going to be a record-breaking window. And Ben has been, you know, kindly updating the timeline with all of these uh, Arsenal um, transfer news and transfer speculation. So I thought, why not reach out to him and hear from the man himself um, where he's not limited to uh, the 280 characters of of Twitter and, and get uh, some of his thoughts and opinions on some of the goings on behind the scenes. So, Ben, um, how are you doing today? Yeah, great to be here. Always enjoy talking about Arsenal. And as you alluded to, it's been a good window so far. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, it's our pleasure to, to have you on. So, um, I think today I read something that said um, with the transfer of um, Alexander Zinchenko um, to Arsenal, uh, that makes Arsenal the biggest spenders in Europe um, so far in this window with over £115 million um, spent. So just to start off with that transfer, because Arsenal have been very active, um, you know, I've seen some updates from yourself um, around where uh, he might be used. Um some people have been saying that he is, um, you know, sort of Arsenal's first choice uh, replacement for um, the Lissandro Martinez deal. Um, so would see him being played in, at left back. And then some um, have said, you know, because of his, I guess, history at Man City, where he's been primarily used as as a left back, that this he's making this move to um, to come and, and show his, his worth as a midfielder. So um, it would be great if uh, if you, Ben, could share with us um, what your thoughts around sort of how Arsenal view this transfer um, and where he could potentially fit in um, once that is finalised. Yeah, I think that it's a superb signing because of the versatility and that's the selling point. So from Mikel Arteta's perspective, he gets a player capable really of filling three positions loosely, the standard left back and inverted left back, or a midfielder and for Ukraine Zinchenko plays in midfield for Manchester City he saw himself as a left back but utilized few and far between in terms of game time and even though actually was very liked at Manchester City and a fair few people sad to see him go the whole appeal of the move is about that regular game time and I think you'll see Mikel Arteta deploy him as he sees fit 
in a very versatile way. So I don't think this has been sold to Zinchenko solely as one position. I think it is more about that ability to be quite fluid in different situations and based upon the game management required. My understanding is that he really likes playing in midfield and stepping up the field when he's on international duty. And yet Manchester City very much converted him to a left-back, which is what he's used to doing on a day-on-day basis. And Mikel Arteta hasn't, as I understand it, pinned himself towards any one position. The versatility of the player is the reason why Arsenal want to bring him in the squad to cover multiple positions. So there's competition at left-back and in midfield as well, especially if there are other incomings. But I think Zinchenko believes that he's going to be playing 30-plus games for Arsenal. I would have thought in a mixture of positions. And when you compare that to, I think it was only 15 appearances for Manchester City last season, that gives him the sort of stability on the football side to play game on game and develop form. And I think only when he arrives will Arteta really work out within the system and comparative to other incomings exactly where his best position in the system is. But I don't think that pushing him up to midfield is being discounted by Arteta at this stage. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I guess um, you know, in just in on, on that transfer as well, are you expecting that? Um, that would get wrapped up in the next few days um, where, because I, I believe Man City are in um, the US as well, um, uh, in, in the South, Arsenal obviously in Florida um, right now. So would you would you uh, be expecting him to sort of link up with the, the Arsenal squad and then maybe take part in the, the tail end of that US tour? That's the expectation. So the paperwork has all been signed and then you have the formalities ranging from the change of registration to the medical. And these things generally take three or four days before the player can officially be part of a new club and things are on track. And I think that fans perhaps don't realise that because they see on Twitter a deal has been agreed. And at that point, they think, OK, it must be signed now. They must be in our colours. They must announce it. But having worked for various football clubs on transfers as a consultant, historically in a previous role before I joined CBS, I've seen the kind of mechanics from done deal or verbal agreement to formal agreements all the way through to medical and announcement. And it can take a little bit of time for various reasons. Sometimes it's on the financial side because maybe the terms require a payment up front. Other times it's to do with paperwork and co-signatures needed from both the buyer and the seller. Sometimes it's about scheduling the medical and the logistics around that, which can be harder during pre-season because players aren't necessarily doing it in the traditional way when the club is in a fixed position. And sometimes it's just down to player preference as well. Like Raheem Sterling was out in Jamaica when the deal was basically finalised as far as Manchester City to Chelsea was concerned. So that took a little bit extra as well. But Arsenal fans can rest assured that it's a done deal. I know that there was sort of some reports out there only 24 hours ago suggesting the player had had a change of heart, but that is not my understanding that there was ever any doubt. And therefore, Zinchenko will be linking up with Arsenal as soon as he possibly can. And I expect mm. that one to be announced formally pretty soon now. Sure. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, and Ben, um, it would be good to know just a little bit more about your background um, as well. So you mentioned there before you joined in CBS, you'd had some various roles sort of working on transfers as a consultant and that kind of thing. So um, I'm sure our listeners 
uh, would be very interested to know um, sort of how you got into that, what what exactly um, you were doing on a day-to-day when you're working with these clubs, and then I guess how you ended up um, at CBS as well um, before we, we move on to some other, other topics. Yeah, of course, trained journalist, having graduated in English, and I started at the BBC, and then I moved on to be in sports as a senior reporter who are based out of the Middle East and North Africa, and have got a lot of the rights, particularly Champions League, Premier League, La Liga. And then I relocated to America as a consultant working for an agency, and we were embedded with various clients, ranging from top football clubs to organizations like FIFA, working on everything really from content creation to communication strategies to football and recruitment. And as a consequence, when you're embedded within a football club, you see it from a different angle and you learn how a director of football works internally, what kind of volume of targets they're looking at, how they're negotiating. And of course, then there's a plan after the negotiation takes place for when the player is going to be announced and to what kind of degree. And by degree, I mean that some clubs like to just announce it very simply without a tease before the medical. You'll see that with Barcelona in particular and some of the Spanish sides. Other clubs like to get their interview in the bag, their tease in the bag. They like to sync up with their commercial department and make more of a song and dance and also only reveal something when it's 100% definite. So always therefore after the medical and every CEO and owner and sporting director has a different opinion on that. But traditionally in the Premier League, they tend to be a lot safer in terms of when they announce things comparative to the La Liga clubs. But it's really interesting seeing it from that kind of perspective and advising clubs on how to, for example, market a player that they want to sell to get the maximum amount of money or conversely bring in a player and utilise their non-football assets to commercial benefit. And a lot of my work was kind of around that area on the football side, working with various top level clubs. I can't name the clubs because you sign NDAs that stop you specifically saying who you've worked with. But broadly speaking, I've worked on projects like the World Cup and also with individual European clubs that are in the Champions League or Europa League around comms or content creation or digital transformation. So that was quite interesting. And then after that, I then moved back into journalism. I got this job at CBS and I'm now a senior reporter. And we obviously focus on clubs with American angles or American owners because that is our audience, but also just big name transfers across the window that we feel have got appeal to our audience and beyond. And CBS has got various platforms. We have CBS Sports HQ, which is kind of like our equivalent of Sky Sports News. We have CBS and Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus is like the online platform and CBS is just your standard TV channel. And that airs Champions League and Serie A and NWSL and WSL. But we also cover Mm. Premier League and La Liga and so on. So it's a really exciting role. I've been here for about a year now and I'm really enjoying it because it gives me the opportunity to engage with guys like yourself and directly with fan bases and follow transfers and takeovers. And I like covering stories really that have more of an investigative angle or a breaking news angle like sport meets business, sport meets social activism. But of course, when the window opens, it does take up a lot of our time and energy. Mm. And that's mm. what I'm focusing on now over this summer. 
Yeah, fair play, fair play. Sounds like a, a very exciting career um, to date. I know Sean, uh, he works in uh, communications and, and uh, he will have some similar experience um, alongside some of the things that you've described um, there. And, and German Dan, um, another one of our cast members, he's left a comment here, tell, tell my man to get me a job. So he's currently <laughs> working. Um, he's currently working uh, in, in, in partnerships um, with some, some, some sports um, <clears throat> organizations as well. So, you know, a lot of shared experience uh, there, but thank you very much for sharing that. That is um, very insightful. And I guess that sort of makes sense as to how you get some of the inside line with that network that you've built up over the years um, around some of these, these transfers and leaning on, you know, the right person here, the right person there to give you, you know, that, um, that, nice transfer exclusive um is is much appreciated by everyone uh who follows you on on the timeline as well so you know going back to that topic of uh transfers um one story that seems to um not be going uh, away uh at the moment um is yuri Tielemans, right so um we've seen that he's now just gone back to um, Leicester, I saw he took part um, in training with them. He's looking very trim, much much uh, slimmer than he normally normally does. Um, like, like, looks like he's been working very hard over the summer, um, and and it seems that this story has been going on from midway through last season. I I, I remember reading that his agents were at London Colney um, very very early. I think even before the January transfer window. Um, uh, discussing, you know, a potential deal for him as he goes into the final year of his contract. And that it seemed that that was going to be something that Arsenal wrapped up very, very quickly um, uh, once this window opened. But for some reason, that doesn't um, seem to be the case. And I think um, you were one of the first people to report around the Ben uh, White transfer um, last summer. Um, and, and I thought it would sort of follow that uh, same sort of... Uh, uh, methodology where we get linked before the season, we have a bit of given and uh, given and uh, to in with Leicester about the price, but then we'd come to a conclusion that he'd end up uh, joining us for pre-season. But it doesn't look like that's happening at the moment. Um, do you want to share any insight as to why that might be um, and what uh, that might mean for both for Arsenal and for Tielemans? Yeah, I mean, Tielemans wants to leave Leicester. It's as simple as that. He would prefer not to sign a new contract. And if he does so, then the transfer fee is going to change accordingly because he'll have more time at Leicester. And Leicester still would also rather, if Tielemans doesn't sign a new contract, not leave themselves open to him exiting on a free. So it makes a lot of sense all round with Tielemans looking for a move and quickly in a World Cup year as well for Leicester to be open to a sale. And they are to the tune of around about 30 to 32 million. From Arsenal's perspective, they feel the valuation should be a little bit lower, but nobody's going to be too far apart in valuation that come to Leicester City because the lowest end of the Tielemans valuation is probably 23 to 25 million and the highest end is 30 to 32. So there's not a massive discrepancy between those kind of figures. And that's obviously because the player only has a year left on his contract. And he's there for the taking if Arsenal want him. It really is as simple as that because Tielemans is sold on a move to the Emirates Stadium and has already agreed personal terms and felt, I think, in January that this was a definite move in the summer when Arsenal were flying and looked on course for the Champions League. 
But something's changed, most notably the fact that Arsenal have decided to go for other priorities first. So Vieira has come in and now Zinchenko, who can play in midfield as well. And once you bring in your first three or four signings in the early part of pre-season, it's very normal for a manager to then look at what he's got rather than rush into any decisions. And that's completely sensible because fans perhaps think that you want all of your signings in by day one of pre-season and speed equals good. But the reality is that if you stagger your incomings, you get more time in pre-season to look at what you might need. And that might be the difference between going for option A or option B. So Tielemans has always been on Arsenal's shortlist, but they haven't yet moved. At no point have they ever placed a formal bid to Leicester City. And that could change over the coming weeks, for sure. There may have to even be a midfield outgoing first for that to happen. Or, of course, the other possibility is a different suitor makes a bid and that finally forces Arsenal to make a move. So I would term Tielemans as still a very realistic possibility, but he just hasn't been a priority target over the course of the last few weeks with Arsenal choosing to focus their attention on getting in Jesus and Zinchenko first and foremost. And they've obviously also brought in Turner and Marquinhos as well. And these are all good signings from Arsenal's perspective. But I still think that there is room to add a bit more depth in that midfield role and Tielemans can get box to box and score goals. So from Arsenal's perspective, it's a case of monitoring it and seeing whether all the hard work that they've put in for the best part of a year finally materialises to an offer. And I think the other thing is Arsenal can take their time because they do feel they've got buy-in from Tielemans, who isn't as yet frustrated with the lack of movement. And the longer that Arsenal perhaps leave it in the window, the more leverage they might have with Leicester City in terms of driving down the fee. So that's the kind of Arsenal perspective. He's there for the taking. He wants to move to Arsenal. He nearly moved to Arsenal before he joined Monaco, but didn't feel he'd get the game time. So if he does join, it's sort of a full circle move. And he's very much still on the shortlist. And then other suitors, Manchester United explored him under Ralph Ranić in January. Again, like Arsenal, knowing he wouldn't be available in January. But what you do is you try and prepare for the summer. And that's why clubs work so far ahead in transfer windows, because you can't just take a swing once the window opens. You have to line up a player and do all the legwork. So Manchester United also did that in January. And under Ralph Ranić, we're told that Tielemans wasn't interested. But Ten Hag has kind of independently re-put Tielemans on a shortlist because Manchester United fear that they won't get De Jong. And it will be interesting to see if United make a formal move. And Tielemans could be open to Manchester United if Arsenal aren't in the race. And Newcastle are also, to some extent, circling. Nothing advanced there, but they've made inquiries. And I think by the end of the window, if this drags on, Tielemans won't be short of offers. And once one offer comes to Leicester, then others will follow. So Arsenal are in quite a strong position because if they bid, they will get the player. I genuinely believe it's as simple as that. But if they don't bid, it becomes an intriguing and open race. And I think that Tielemans would still rather leave for a Manchester United if that is his best option and play European football rather than stay at Leicester. And it's a shame from a Leicester point of view, and I'm speaking now as a fan, because he's been a great servant to the club. He scored the goal that won us the FA Cup. He's dynamic and energetic. He gets box to box. He's a great character. He's a model professional. He's taking all the transfer speculation in his stride. But he's told Leicester repeatedly that he just thinks he's come as far as he can with the club. And that is why I think come the end of the window, he will go rather than sign a new deal at Leicester. 
Yeah, that, that's it's, um, that's interesting, and, and thank you for your insight on that, Ben. Um, obviously, you mentioned you're a Leicester City fan, so you know this link to Arsenal, obviously, as, as Dan has mentioned, has, has been ongoing for a while, and it's been met with some tentative um, responses. You know, some have been very pro it, some have been against it, some have um, you know questioned his mobility um, at, at times. So it'd be great if you could give us a bit more insight into you know the player himself, the style how you see, you know, potentially him fitting in at Arsenal if we do get him, because, you know, um, prior to January, we were playing more of a double pivot. He was playing, you know, playing a 4 one with Xhaka next to Party, But now, you know, we use Party as a single pivot with, with you know, the two eights very, very high up. So, um, you know, how, how would you see him fitting into that? Do you think it's a role he could do? You know, we're potentially looking at Xhaka's role here as the left eight, you know, where we're talking about him, you know, because... Xhaka plays very, very high up now, which is so different to how he was utilised before. You know, he was very much a high-touch, high-volume player. Um, but, you know, sometimes he looks a bit uncomfortable in the final third. How do you, and and do you see Tielemans fitting into that? I think Tielemans could fit into the system really well. The challenge is just going to be whether there's one too many midfielders at the club. But if we assume that he comes in, the Arteta system suits his game really well. And he does have that reputation, probably from non-Leicester fans, as not being that mobile. But I think you'll be surprised when you see him week in, week out, at just how much acceleration he's got over short spaces. So it might be true that he doesn't have the pace of other midfielders, but he finds a way to get box to box very quickly. And that's because he's got speed of touch and turn and very quick decision making as well. And Leicester have undergone various changes in their playing style over a variety of seasons, particularly from Cloud Puel to Brendan Rodgers. And under Puel, Leicester was sort of far more compact and defence-minded, and they focused on counter-attacking football, whereas Rodgers was all about sharpening up the attack and having a little bit more time on the ball. And what that means is that Tielemans has played in a 4-4-2, a 4-1-4-1, a 4-3-3, a 4-2-3-1. And in each of them, he's had a slightly different role. And now you sort of see him sitting in that central midfield, often with a player, assuming everyone's fit, like Wilfred and Diddy. And then you've got a Barnes or a Madison in front, and then perhaps a Vardy or an Ianacho. And when he plays in systems that not only offer width around him, but teams that like to keep the ball. He's got a lot of freedom to move off the ball and get box to box. And even at times interchange with the false nine as he starts to get into the box. And he's very direct and positive in his passing. He's a decent ball winner. The criticism is sometimes around tracking back and losing possession, but he's very good at getting a foot in and winning the ball and then making a quick decision. He's very strong at getting box to box. And he's a good finisher as well, who chips in with his fair share of goals and also assists. I think it was six Premier League goals last season. So what you get in Tielemans is a highly intelligent and very technically gifted playmaker in the centre that's not afraid to go box to box and will win the ball back at times. The question, as I say, is just sometimes 
he sloppily loses it and phases of play break down. And that's maybe when you're a little bit more susceptible to getting caught out on the counter-attack. But he's got just a generally strong influence over a game because he optimises space and possession. He progresses the ball forwards, as I've already alluded to, in a very positive and direct way. He makes his decisions quickly. He can dribble with the ball as well. And he's reasonably versatile, even though he doesn't get into tremendously wide positions. He can, depending on the game management you need from him, be a straight central midfielder. I even think he's got that capability to drop in as a DM when game management requires it in the last 10 minutes of a game. He's explosive when he does need to get forwards. So there's a lot to like from Arsenal's perspective. And I think that Arteta is exactly the kind of manager due to how he operates on the training field and how Arsenal play formationally that will get the best out of him. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think that's um, some really, really good um, insight there. And I think, you know, we've had some various discussions on, on podcast pass around, you know, where Tielemans might fit. Um, and I think uh, we're probably going to load up um, a special scouting piece if that, if that move does uh, come to fruition, just to um, have a, a closer look at his game um, and, you know, really uh, delve into where he, he might fit. So um, we have had quite a few um, listeners' questions that I think will... Um, We'll touch on a, potentially most of the topics that um, we wanted to uh, to discuss, um, and uh, I'll start here with uh, at Jacinio tweets. Uh, big up Jacinio. Um, she said, "What is Arsenal's next priority, and is a left centre back on the cards?" Yeah, I think that there's a range of priorities. A left centre back might be one of the options because we all know that Arsenal wanted Martinez. And the other thing, by the way, on the centre-back front that's going to be intriguing is just the future of Gabriel too, with Juventus to some extent looking at him. But Gleason Bremer's arrival from Torino might calm Arsenal fans down a little bit because there's no huge indication, even though Delete has left, that they're going to try and bring in two defenders. And I actually think that Gabriel is kind of a future Arsenal captain and had such a good relationship with Ben White last season that Arsenal would be very foolish to let him go. But it's intriguing that there is some interest in that particular player. So I think that uh, left centre-back is a possibility. And I still think a more creative-minded player that's perhaps a bit more... I don't want to say versatile than Tielemans, but capable of playing further up the field. So that either means getting a number 10 or a wide player that can come in and score goals and assists. And there's still kind of room for that. Now, naturally, because as you've already alluded to, Arsenal's spending means that they might have to have some outgoings to generate further funds to make a move for a player like, let's say, Paqueta or a Jack Harrison or Leroy Sane, who they were linked with and looking at prior to Rafinha. So there is at least some historical interest there. And those kind of players, I think Arsenal will need to strengthen as well. And then still the other area that is probably less talked about by the fan base is maybe the goalkeeper situation, because even though Matt Turner has come in, if Leno ends up at Fulham, they still could swoop in the market for another keeper as well. So I think those are the positions that Arsenal are looking at. 
whether or not they have the ability to swoop for two or three as opposed to just one more for now remains to be seen but there's still a fair amount of the window to go so it wouldn't at all surprise me but i think that Arteta will generally just be pretty happy with the window so far so if they can find that one extra defender and then if they can resolve what direction they want to go in with either another Tielemann style player in attacking midfield or maybe more of a goal scoring winger or wide player that can also either be a false nine or a kind of wide forward that's an area that could be strengthened as well even with the arrival of Gabriel Jesus so I think those are the ones to watch between now and the close of the window but for once in recent seasons, what we can say from Arsenal's perspective is that there's kind of cause to relax, not be complacent, not sit on the laurels. But if you compare it to January where there was frustration and there was missed targets, Arsenal have kind of recovered well and they've made sure that the legwork that they put in in January with a view to this summer has paid off and quickly. And now that Jesus and Zinchenko in particular have come in, I think that there's a freshness and a depth to the side. And Jesus in particular is the big one, not just because he's the kind of box office name that's come in so far, but the reality of Arsenal is that for half the season, they look very, very good. And then after January, things turn sour. But if you take Jesus's goals from last season and you were to put them into the Arsenal side last season, then Arsenal would have absolutely finished above Spurs and have Champions League football. So even though fans get frustrated about wanting depth wanting star names, wanting goal scorers, wanting a bit more consistency of performances. They weren't that far off last season at their best from being a really, really top side. So when you add the goals of Jesus, the versatility of Zinchenko, those two alone, coupled with any other names, I think sets Arsenal up, foundationally speaking, for a really strong season. How, um, you know, obviously, we know, you, and you mentioned in there, Paqueta has, has, has been mooted as a potential name as well if you were to compare um in terms of hotness how more likely one is than the other you know how concrete you know is our interest in lucas paqueta well arsenal are interested in paqueta but they've not made a bid and it's also not true by the way that leon will let paqueta go for any kind of cut price i saw some reports out there saying the fee might be as low as about 35 million quid or 50 million euros it's much more likely to be 60 to 65 and even though the player wants a fresh challenge and is open to the Premier League, that's the problem negotiating with Leon. And he's a name on the list, but nothing advanced at this point. And if they are to proceed Arsenal, the tactic is to go to the agent and the player and get buy-in so they know that they're not wasting their time. And the backdrop to all of this, which makes it so challenging, is that Jean-Michel Olas is a tricky negotiator who claims he wants lots of offers. And back in January, he said that, Paqueta's value would be 80 million euros. So even at 65, that's a softened stance. But Leon have got a new majority shareholder, an American coming in by the name of John Textor, and he's not formally in yet, so he can't influence proceedings. But he has said in the build up to arriving that Leon will challenge PSG and he is going to use his influence and financials to help them close the gap. So he, I think, is not in favor of selling Paqueta. And it's unclear at this point whether Jean-Michel Olas is kind of going to be scapegoated for the sales. So then Textor can come in and say it was all done before my time or whether Olas is just doing a power play now to let the player feel like Leon are considering offers. And then when Textor comes in, he'll slam the door 
and say not for sale. And Arsenal are just doing the standard due diligence during a window and they're looking at the price and they're looking at the players' wishes and then they'll make a decision. But to be clear, the interest is genuine and Arteta admires Paqueta, but there is nothing at this stage from Arsenal's perspective that is advanced. And then from Newcastle's perspective, very similar. They looked at the player quite seriously in January and he remains on their radar. But Newcastle are exploring a variety of different wingers. They tried for Musa Diaby, but felt the price was too high. And he's now said that he's staying at Bayer Leverkusen. And then the other name is Jack Harrison, who might be available from Leeds United. And it's a sort of strange one because on the one hand, Leeds have got no obligation to sell. They've pulled in the money from Rafinha and Calvin Phillips and Leeds fans would feel it's a hugely unambitious move to let Harrison go as well for somewhere between 35 and 40 million plus add-ons. But if the right offer comes in and the player doesn't want to be embroiled in what he perceives to be a relegation battle, then he might be able to force his way out of Ellen Road. So again, there's nothing specific to Arsenal on that kind of player. But this is what happens as the window gets closer to closing. You get the opportunism of a merry-go-round of movement and certain clubs getting in a target, which means they're prepared to sell a player that they weren't earlier in the window. So it's one to keep an eye on because he's a superb player. And Newcastle are actually, as I understand it, starting to push quite hard to try and get Harrison over the line. But Paqueta's there. He's on a list. I don't see a scenario where Tielemans and Paqueta necessarily arrive because Tielemans kind of gets box to box and uh, Paqueta actually, even though he'll be billed as a number 10, has said his favoured position is left midfield and Zinchenko likes to also play in left midfield. So, you know, you can put them in different positions and make a formation, but fundamentally there is some overlap in where they like to play. So I think that it would be too much in terms of depth, even though depth is a good thing to have all of those names. So that's why Arsenal are exploring different options. And at some point in the window, I do think they'll move on one of these names. Mm. Thanks. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I'm trying to um I'm trying to filter out some of these questions, right? Because we've got a lot um I think that are on sort of like the tactical side and where players are going to fit in and that kind of thing. And as as you said, you're a Leicester fan, so I'm not expecting you to, you know, opine um on uh, sort of whether Arsenal should play a 4-2-3-1 versus a 4-3-3 or anything like that. Um, but uh, one one topic that has come up uh, across a, a few questions, so we've got at Mike underscore Adama, he has said, um, any news on Maitland-Niles, Torreira, Bellerin and Mary Sales? Um, and do, 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 I just saw it now. Um at J Dorco one, he said any news on potential outgoing. So um I think um Arsenal probably have one of the bigger squads um as as we record this right now. So I think we took 33 players um on the US tour, including five goalkeepers. Um so I think you know there's a lot of business to be done in terms of outgoings as well. So um do you have any insight um into what 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 progress Arsenal have made in, in terms of shifting some of these guys? Yeah, one or two of the names you mentioned, I've got a little bit of insight. We know that Bellerin wants to leave, so I expect that to be uh, outgoing before the window shuts for sure. And then Saliba is an interesting one. The expectation is that he will stay. 
and that Mikel Arteta sees him as integral to the long-term future of Arsenal and Marseille tried and really wanted to sign the player and could yet come back in for him and can offer him Champions League football. He certainly enjoyed his spell there, but for now he's part of the Arsenal setup and they are not planning to get rid of him. And then with Saka, the expectation is that he will also sign a new contract and is not touchable within this window, despite some kind of reported interest as far as Manchester City are concerned. Jack is a really interesting one for me because if you're going to make space in midfield, is he the one that might be made available? It's certainly one to watch as the window progresses. And then Maitland-Niles, I know that there's been some interest from a couple of Premier League clubs, particularly Brighton and Nottingham Forest, but no movement yet on that one. I think that it's going to be interesting with Arsenal, whether they accelerate the outgoings, because as you've alluded, it's already a large squad, or whether they seek a target first and then look to offload a player that's surplus to requirements in that position. So is it a find first, offload second, or is it an offload first because the squad is too big anyway? And the honest truth is I don't know the answer to that question, but I think that that is a debate that will be had and then with Maitland-Niles, Nottingham Forest are obviously looking to replace Jed Spence. They might, by the way, separate to this, be pretty close to bringing in Jesse Lingard. So that's one to watch. Most people think that he was almost certainly off to West Ham, but I actually think that Forest have made a late bid and that one could be a possibility. So it's going to be interesting to see whether Arsenal move first just to clear the decks and I think with Maitland-Niles, Arsenal are willing to cash in on him. And the challenge will just be around the wages for the clubs that are actually circling. So I don't think if somebody comes to Arsenal with a fair offer for Maitland-Niles, they would reject it. I do think that they are open to a sale. But I think that Maitland-Niles will want at least 60,000, something in that ballpark, 50 to 60,000, which might not seem a lot to an Arsenal fan, but that would be seen as quite a high weekly wage for like a Brighton or a Nottingham Forest style side. So agreeing those personal terms could be a challenge as well. And even though Arsenal aren't extortionate in their wage bill, they're still a tier or two above some of these slightly smaller Premier League clubs that like to stay within a rigid wage structure. And that, I think, could end up putting off one or two that are currently circling. But I think it's generally good news from Arsenal's perspective, because as you look at the outgoings, you'll see Leno try and force that move to Fulham. And he's actively, from what I understand, and my colleague at CBS, James Benj, reported this a few days ago, he's actively trying to get Arsenal to reduce the transfer fee and get out of there. So I think he'll go. I think Bellerin will go. I think Gabriel will stay. I think Xhaka has a question mark over him. I think Maitland-Niles, Arsenal are open to offers for sure. And then I think Saka stays in this window, come what may. And the whole point as well of getting Saka to sign, by the way, a new contract is not just to say he's staying, which is the primary function. It's to protect the sell-on value as well. So if Arsenal are privately resigned in two seasons time or however long that they will sell him, then having him extend means that they can continue to keep that exit price as high as possible, which means that you get the dual benefit of having the player 
and assuming that he's part of your plans indefinitely. And that's Arteta's perspective. But then from a business perspective, you've got that win-win of we've got him now. But if we were to sell him, we've always got the ability of keeping that price as high as possible. And that's the kind of double benefit of getting a player like Saka to sign a new contract as soon as possible. And I guess one name um, that I think most Arsenal fans would be expecting to leave as well um, this summer is Nicolas Pepe. Um, so is there, do you have any insight as to, you know, potentially his future? Because I think last season, uh, his last start in the league came in October. Um, and for someone who is, you know, sort of 26, turning 27, um, you'd think that he would want to go somewhere else and, and sort of really be a starter um, coming in for £72 million, etc. And from the manager's perspective, when you're not starting someone uh, for basically the remaining uh, six months of the season, uh, it seems that they're not really part of your plan. So um, do you have any insight there as well? It's going to be difficult, isn't it? Because whatever Arsenal do with Pepe, they're likely to lose money, which is a shame and it just hasn't worked out for him. As I understand it, there wasn't too much in the links with other Premier League clubs like West Ham United. But what I do know is that Sevilla are really interested in the player and there's definitely substance to that. Arsenal, I think, paid £72 in 2019. And as you've already outlined very well, he's just slipped down the pecking order. And Arsenal are resigned to the fact that they're not going to get anything near £72 I think Sevilla would be prepared to pay something all in in the region of about 20 to 25 million arsenal may see that as a little bit low but fundamentally whatever the price ends up being and wherever he goes arsenal are going to lose roughly half the money that they spent because i don't see anybody paying let's say more than 35 million plus add-ons for pepe and even that might be seen by fans and buying clubs as extremely high. So I think the starting point for Pepe will be more around the 20 to 25 million mark. And then we'll see whether Arsenal entertain that or try and recoup some of the transfer fee. And Sevilla would also need Pepe to take some kind of salary reduction, which is the other challenge with getting rid of the 27-year-old. So what is going to be interesting is if Sevilla are genuine and their interest is there, then should Jules Kunde leave for Chelsea and there is a verbal agreement in place at the moment with Sevilla, and he could, of course, also end up at Barcelona, that gives Sevilla a record transfer fee. And with that record transfer fee, they'll then be able to move in the market. So it's one to watch as far as Sevilla is concerned. I don't think a move to West Ham makes any sense whatsoever. But there'll be clubs that are prepared to take a gamble on Nicola Pepe purely because the bargain is in the fact that he could be a 70 million odd player at his best and he's still only 27 years of age. It hasn't worked out at Arsenal. But if you were to get him for under half of that price, then it's a bargain financially. And then the question is just whether or not he lives up to that bargain and refines his form. But I think that his days at Arsenal are numbered and unfortunately, it is just going to be one of those deals where, financially speaking, Arsenal get him off the wage bill. That's a plus, but they don't get a particularly decent transfer fee comparative to what they paid. Thanks. Mm. Yeah, I think I think if if someone offers twenty to twenty five million, if I'm Arsenal, I'm, I'm taking that 
um, and running away, to be honest. Um, that would be a great a great deal. Some of the numbers we've spoken about in our WhatsApp group um, don't come anywhere close to that uh, when it comes to Nicolas Pepe. So um, if Sevilla, you know, um, for you, my friend, yeah, yeah, we, we've got a deal that we can, we can do with them. Um, so the next question here that we have, uh, from Yonko Ab. So this is more just sort of like a contextual uh, general transfer question. Um, so what what would you say is the biggest selling point to potential signings for Arsenal, um, really? So um, I guess at the moment, uh, you know, we're not in the Champions League. Uh, so in terms of, you know, selling that project to potentially Champions League players, uh, and he's given some options here. He said London, wages, Arteta's process, uh, the history of the club, um, and that kind of thing. So do you think that there's sort of one key thing that, that Arteta is using to to really sell? And then uh, just to add a, a second part of that question um, from another uh, Twitter user. So this is at Guns Blazing. Um, he said, how helpful is having a clear system in attracting new signings? So I'll put those two questions together. Yeah, I think Arsenal uh, marketing on a long-term strategy and the stability at the football club compared to, say, Manchester United is clear that Arsenal have got faith in Arteta. Edu is seemingly finding his feet within transfer windows and the two are working really well together. And the advantage that Arsenal have got is in that relationship between Edu and Mikel Arteta. And Mikel Arteta is playing an active role in this window, probably more so than any window before. He's directly pitching to players. He's actively involved early in the process and he's making it clear to players that he wants what their specific role is in the team, how they fit into the system, how they'll be used. And that is what ultimately has got him signings like Jesus and Zinchenko. And I think the other thing is just, and it may be specific to this window because you're not always going to get it, Arteta's got lucky in the sense that the players that he wants are also players to some extent that either he or Edu knows. So Edu's gone down a Brazilian kind of route, not just with the established players, but Marquinhos too. And Arsenal have always, since Silvino, had a history of, of Brazilians. Some, of course, have worked and others haven't. But generally speaking, the club has always had that strategy long before Edu. And even when Edu was a player and one of those Brazilians. So I think there's a strategy in place. That's the first thing. I think that there is a style that is more defined than other clubs. And even though Arsenal haven't got Champions League, I think that players buy into that. And then, of course, there's the role of the manager in pulling in a name that he knows and thinks that he can improve. And Arteta's role was absolutely integral in both the transfers of Zinchenko and Jesus. So don't underestimate how a manager can make a player feel welcome. And not every single manager early in the process picks up the phone and is part of the pitch. And then, of course, you just have the advantages of Arsenal's history and London. And a footballer will make a decision not only on football and wages and personal terms. They'll think about their family. They'll think about their location. So Arsenal have always had those pluses, a good stadium in London, decent training facilities. And there's a lot of players that are lured there, certainly, say, compared to my team, Leicester, where a lot of people don't want to live. 
and Newcastle are going to find this as well. And I don't want to be derogatory against Newcastle. I love it up there. I think it's brilliant. But for some players, it's too far north. And for other players, they're just a hell-bent on living in a capital city because it's right for their family. So we've got to always remember that footballers are humans. And when they make their decision between two clubs, they do so based upon the reality of what is going to be right, not just for their football career, but their lives as well. So Arsenal have got a lot going for them in that respect. But I think the key to the recruitment is this ever-strengthened relationship between Arteta and Edu. Arteta's direct role in the transfer negotiations and the fact that Arsenal are just in a position where one or two of the bigger names that they have been able to get are looking for game time. So with Jesus, he could have gone to Spurs. Chelsea made a late bid, but he chose Arsenal because he wants to be that automatic starter and that focal point in attack. And Zinchenko, again, limited game time at Manchester City and much more integral at Arsenal Football Club. And it's about Arteta because they know him and they trust him because he was at Manchester City with those two players, being able to pitch to them. If you come to Arsenal, you get that kind of automatic selection almost when you're fit. You get that ability to be focal in our team. Whereas if you go to Spurs, how could Antonio Conte have told Gabriel Jesus that he would have been the number one when you've still got the likes of Kane and Son there? How could Thomas Tuchel have convinced Gabriel Jesus that he was going to be the number one with Raheem Sterling incoming and Kai Havertz leading the line and still Werner and Pulisic and Ziyech still there. So I think that Arsenal have partially through their own downfall almost of not finding that absolute striker focal point. And I know like Obama Young was at the club until relatively recently, but generally speaking for seasons now, Arsenal have been screaming for that automatic 20 plus goal scorer. And I think it's that ability to play into the aspiration of players like Jesus on the goal-scoring side and Zinchenko on the game front. And the other thing to bear in mind, too, is just that not so much for Zinchenko now, but for a lot of players, even ones that Arsenal haven't either succeeded with or haven't yet bid for, it's a World Cup year. And if that player stands a chance of playing in the World Cup, then the game time and the focal point is even more important, particularly if they're not guaranteed to be in the first 11 or the squad in the first place. So don't underestimate when a player comes in, if they're part of a World Cup team, that ability of Arsenal to use the game time offset against a World Cup year, especially a winter World Cup, because these players know that they need to hit the ground running if they're going to be selected. Yeah, I, I think um, I'm not sure how many questions Dan's got left. I think just the last one from me, um, Ben, is just in relation to your obviously from an outside perspective, what your current view of Arsenal is. So, so, so if we look at it holistically, this will be after this season. Um, Arteta would have been in charge three and a half years. If we go on projected, you know, signings, we could potentially clear four hundred million in terms of expenditure since Arteta has been in charge. So. You know, there, there, are, there is still a bit of a division, you know, in terms of some people backing the process. How, how much should we believe in it? You know, what, what should be, from, from, an outside, from an outside perspective, what should be a realistic expectation of Arsenal this season? Because for me, it's top four. Obviously, I know for some people, they might say, oh, it's relative to what other clubs do. But I think, you know, we're banking on, um, you know, we've backed a rookie manager who has probably got unprecedented levels of, 
backing, you know, that I've not seen any Arsenal manager get, you know, in previous times. So I think it's incumbent on him if he's as highly rated as, you know, people are talking about to for him to push us into that top four. I think, you know, this is he's going to be his third full season in charge, three and a half years. So, yeah, what's your overall thought on that? And, you know, am I being too harsh? But I, I feel like, you know, and some others agree that, you know, he should definitely be judged very harshly in terms of results this season. I think that the patience period is running out because you just can't go back to back or back to back to back and so on seasons without hitting the base goal, which for Arsenal Football Club has to be Champions League football. And what adds pressure to this season is just the fact that the back half of the season was very poor or certainly March onwards. And everybody knows that the seven, I believe, losses that took place, or maybe it was six from mid-March onwards, are just not good enough, particularly the three back-to-back ones in early April, where there was a terrible 3-0 loss at Palace, there was a really poor home loss to Brighton, and there was an away defeat at Southampton. And that really knocked everyone's confidence. And Arteta has all this potential, or this is how I see it from the outside in, He's a very technical coach. He's a good man manager. He certainly puts fire in the belly. I think we'll see that when the All or Nothing documentary comes out. He's a really intense manager. But what Arsenal haven't had is consistency. And they're such an extreme side at times that they become polarising. So in the back half of the year, it was either win or bust. And they could have done with obviously just picking up a point here or a point there by managing out a game or hanging on to something or coming back in a game. And that extra point would have made the difference. But from memory, I think their only draw in 2022 was against Burnley. So you've either got a win streak or a lose streak. And I remember when we headed into December, there was the win over Southampton. There was the win over West Ham, I think it was. And then there were two pretty emphatic wins away at Leeds and Norwich. And everyone thought, right, Arsenal are heading in the right direction. They've got over the wobble of losing the first three games of the season. They've got over the wobble of that away defeat to Manchester United and that away defeat to Everton. Everything's on track. Then, of course, they played Manchester City to start the year and lost, but there wasn't too much panic. And then there was a relatively dire draw against Burnley. And what Arteta did was wrestle it back. And then they had a series of wins that followed. And I remember when Arsenal came to Leicester or Leicester were away in the game, actually, it was at the Emirates Stadium and they won 2-0. And it just looked for all the money in the world that Arsenal were going to sail towards top four. And then again, there was an indifferent patch and it obviously all culminated with first the North London derby defeat and then the away loss to Newcastle. And suddenly out of nowhere, they managed to snatch Europa League football out of the jaws of Champions League football. So I think that it's not for me about a criticism of Arteta's style. It's about the squad lacking game management and consistency to get the job done in the really big games. So what Arsenal need this season is a better record against the sides around them because they obviously started the season losing to Chelsea. They lost twice to Manchester City. They were hammered 4-0 away at Liverpool. They lost away at Manchester United. They were defeated at home as well to Liverpool. 
And I'm sure there's other ones that fans can say that 3-0 North London derby as well. But those are the ones that I can remember off the top of my head. So that's not a great record against the sides around you. So the task this season is to win more games against the big five plus Arsenal, if we're referring to the big six, and then to finish in the top four. And if they don't finish in the top four, then there'll be no progress made. And if Jesus succeeds and scores goals and they still don't finish in the top four, then that's quite alarming. So I don't see anything better than top four. I don't even see anything better than fourth place. I think it's even a challenge to catch Chelsea, who by the end of the window will be relatively strong. And they're miles away still from Manchester City and Liverpool. But what Arsenal need to do is take a baby step towards getting back above Spurs and into Champions League football and making sure that a team like Newcastle don't have a surge and replace them as well. And that is all they can ask for at this point. A more consistent brand of football, more goals from the focal point in Jesus and Champions League football. And if they do that, they'll have had a good season. If they don't finish in the top four, they'll have had a bad season, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I think... um... Yeah, I think that's uh, that's pretty much spot on. Um, the last question that I have from you for you, Ben. Um, there are some other questions, Sean, that uh, we can we can uh, tackle after we let uh, Ben go. More relating to you know sort of formations and and who should start um, in which positions, etc. But um, last question. So there's been talk of a mystery winger, right? Um, I'm seeing Leroy Sane's name. Uh, pop up here and there that you know Bayern Munich, Bayern Munich would be willing to let him go after um, signing Sadio Mane, um, and I just wanted to know if there, you know, firstly, is there any truth to to those Sane links, um, and secondly, if you have any inkling as to who um, that left winger uh, might might be. Well, the Sane links are born out of the fact that he was on a shortlist before Rafinha, so there's nothing to suggest that Arsenal have recently revisited Sane. And I think that the feeling is that both the player would need some convincing to come back to the Premier League and in addition to that, may actually just extend his stay. And therefore, it becomes quite a challenging one if Arsenal are to proceed. As far as mystery wingers are concerned, I can't really add too much to the conversation at this stage. Edu's notorious for keeping targets quite close. And as a journalist, the advantage you have is you can go to both sides. So you either get wind from an Arsenal source or the selling club might let you know. I wouldn't entirely rule out somebody like Harrison, by the way, because if he becomes available in the market, it wouldn't remotely surprise me if other clubs try and hijack that deal. But there's nothing in it at the moment from Arsenal's perspective. There's nothing yet to suggest that they would want to join a race for a player either like Anthony, but there's a few Premier League clubs still circling there. So I've got to be honest with you. Sometimes as journalists, we know the answer. Sometimes we don't. At this stage, a mystery winger is gathering pace across social media. But when I actually speak to Arsenal sources, they're very coy. And the suggestion remains that there's nobody so far advanced in that Vieira sense that we're going to get a surprise where the mystery winger becomes the mystery signing. And that was what was quite interesting about the whole Vieira thing that I think I speak on behalf of a number of colleagues within the media, but I can certainly hold my hands up and say myself that I was blindsided by that. And I'm sure that other people were. And that's not because we didn't do due diligence as journalists. That's not because we're not trying to keep across all possible transfers. It's just the reality that sometimes a player 
get signed very silently and secretly because actually the two clubs come to an agreement quite quickly and they want to keep it quiet because they don't want it to be complicated or hijacked. So this is part of the gamesmanship of the window, but I haven't really got too much to add. I don't like to speculate without substance um, and mystery winger wise. There doesn't appear to be too many names out there that Arsenal are working on. Unless, like I say, as per Vieira, they just surprise us with a signing out of nowhere, which you can't put it past Edu because of how he operates. But I don't really have too much more to add on that. Fair, fair play, fair play. And I think, yeah, on that Eddie point, um, was it uh, the Matt Ryan last January um, was very similar. I think deadline day that just came out of the blue Callum Chambers to Aston Villa. Um, as well, so we really didn't see some any rumours around around that before those moves happened. So I'm 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 still keeping hope that you know uh, we might just pull something out of the bag um, there. But um, but Ben, um, thank you very much for joining us. You've been very very insightful, um, shared some some great knowledge, great to learn about your background as well. And and um, I for one, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be. Um, keeping your notifications on uh, on on Twitter for the rest of the the transfer window um to get the those inside scoops and exclusive transfer news updates so um thank you very much for joining us um and we'll be happy to have you back on the podcast anytime yeah pleasure always happy to come on always enjoy engaging with arsenal fans and i genuinely think that arsenal will have a good window and a good season as well and hey let's hope so because when the club are at their best, as we saw last season, it's exciting times. And if they can get Champions League and consolidate themselves in Champions League, then all of the faith in Arteta will have paid off. And the most frustrating thing as a football fan is just when you don't know which team is going to turn up or you don't know if your club's got any stability. Man United are finding this as well, that if every season the manager changes or if every season they go from world beaters to disappointments, then all that hard-earned money that the fans pay might at times go to waste and there's this kind of frustration that bubbles. So Arsenal have got all the tools, they've got all the potential and they can still add a little bit more depth and quality as well. And it's now on Arteta to take all of that and realise the potential. And this is the season to do it. So it's becoming a really pivotal season because if you look at January, Arteta can turn around and say, well, we were in a great position, but I wasn't able to strengthen. Now there's no excuses. There's a high volume of players coming in. There's a long period of the window still to go. There's a buzz, I think, anyway. Arsenal fans might correct me, around the Emirates Stadium because of Jesus and Zinchenko is a popular signing as well. So if Arsenal can start the season with momentum, then I think perhaps not the sky's the limit as far as the Premier League is concerned, but third place, maybe fourth place, definitely very realistic possibility. And if I was an Arsenal fan anyway, I would take that. So keep up the good work to both of you and look forward to engaging with all of the Arsenal fans on social media or through CBS platforms throughout the window and beyond. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cheers, Ben. Um, so, Sean, um, we do have some more questions uh, just on the tactical side, so we can run through these um, very quickly. Um, so, uh, first one here uh, is from um 
at underscore the unserious. So he says, uh, what position would give us the biggest boost in achieving top four, left eight upgrade or another winger? And then number two, he said, what do you think about ESR as the right eight to connect with Saka and Erdegaard as the left eight to provide a technicality for Martin Elliott on the left wing? Um, yes, on that second question, that's 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 what I said um, I, would, I would like to do personally. Um, I think ESR and Saka have... Uh, a better relationship personally. I know Odegaard and Saka are really good on that side, but I just think ESR is a little bit more dynamic with his movement, can switch places um, and allow Saka to operate more on the inside um, rather than being just a touchline winger. And on the first one, the first question, what position would give us the biggest boost? I think um, another winger personally. I think we need goals. Um, I think we can we can probably manage um, with Xhaka, Vieira, Odegaard, Zinchenko potentially um, in centre mid, but I think in that forward forward line we need we need some more goals, man. We need some more goals. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think um, a winger has to be part. I mean, they're both priorities, but but a, a winger first and foremost. Um, obviously, Ben Ben mentioned you know some of the guys we're looking well potentially looking at, but the names the the potential short list is very very short, and especially when you know one of the names we liked, Musa Diaby, has come out and said he's not leaving this summer as well. So. You know, the Sane one, I, I honestly, I'm going to be honest with you, I just don't give that any credence, you know. We spoke about how Gnabry was unrealistic. This is even more unrealistic to me. Like, Mental. literally, what can Arsenal offer? <laughs> Leroy Sane that Bayern Munich can't, literally. Unless my man wants to come and play for Arteta, which I, I, it's just it's just not happening. That, like, that Arteta it, pool, yeah? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a non-star. People need to ignore that. Because one thing's first, you know, German Dan said as well that, Part of the reason, you know, uh, Bayern Munich started handing out loads of new contracts was because of the money Sané was on. I don't know how much man was on, but I just think it's a myth. It's a myth. Yeah. Um, and the only viable way we could do it is if we had Champions League. Other than that, it's just, it's, it's, it's not feasible. So I don't know, man. I don't know. Generally, I don't know what the name is, the mystery winger, whoever it is. You know, I think, but obviously Ben quickly just mentioned as well, you know, Arsenal, and, and it is quite evident to me as well, Arsenal are working very, very tightly not to leak any names. Even, you know, the Rafinha and Martinez stuff, I think that were leaked by, like, you know, the selling clubs to try and drive, like, you know, bids and stuff as well. I don't think Arsenal tried to leak anything. So, you know, Jesus, I guess, but we all knew about that from time. Um, yeah, I, I think obviously they're, they're citing the Vieira thing. So I think they're trying to do the same with the winger, whoever it is. So, so let's see, man. Um, and I also agree on, you know, it would be nice because, you know, we talk about comparing ourselves with City, following the City blueprint. If you look at when City in the early days, they had, what, David Silva, left centre mid, KDB, right centre mid. Um, you know, so it'd be nice if we could try to recreate that dynamic, maybe. I'd have got mm. left centre mid, ESR, right centre mid. I totally agree with you because obviously we don't ask the fullbacks to overlap. They're, they're all um, inverted. So, you know, ESR is more dynamic. Um he could overlap Saka, allowing Saka to come in with it'd be something I like to trial. You know, this is the great time preseason to experiment and stuff with that. But yeah, and, and I think that would be another alternative if we don't get a centre mid as well. It'd be something I'd, I wouldn't mind seeing, wouldn't mind trying. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure at the moment, man. I'm just not sure at the mm. moment. So, so we'll see. Yeah, fair play, fair play. Um, this and it's sort of similar to that. We're well, building on that left hand question from Count Draxula. He says. Um, do you think Enketia could be an outside option for the left wing? I was very impressed with his performance against Nuremberg. Thinks he has a lot to offer over guys like ESR and Martinelli. 
Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, it's gonna. The, the thing is, I, I, I totally get where people are coming from with this thing in it. They want to see, and and you know, we're we're all seeing Eddie explode and you know develop physically in front of our eyes. It's great to see, but I don't know, man. I think that would be the. I'd like to see them both on the pitch, but I think that's probably the sort of thing we see. You know, when we're chasing games, you know, we've seen um, in the second half of games, Arteta experiment with this, you know, sort of three-one-four-two um, formation. So. That's where I think it would come in, but I think I wouldn't start the game like that, preferably. And there's enough games like Eddie will play a lot this season. Don't worry about that. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot, a lot of games, so Eddie will play significant, significant minutes this season. So I ain't too worried about that. It's hard for me to say. Let me see that at the same time while I'm asking for a new winger. Do you know what I mean? So, so yeah, mm. yeah, fair play. And I think, yeah, I think Eddie. You know, maybe not on the left wing, but um, one thing that I'm finding interesting about this preseason is Arteta deploying this sort of this three-five-two um, formation because I think not only does that you know allow um, uh, Eddie and Jesus to play together, it also gets um, a lot of our better players on the pitch as well. So you know, you see uh, Gabriel Saliba and White um, potentially playing in that formation. You get Saka, uh, Martinelli. Um, playing on on as wing backs potentially there with ESR um Erdegaard Partey uh, or you know whoever you know might might make up that that midfield three as well so you know I did like the link up um between Eddie and Jesus in that first first game I can't remember who it was uh, I think it was Nuremberg, Nuremberg yeah? Yeah, yeah it was Nuremberg and you know I liked a few of the highlights from Eddie as well um in that Everton match, it's just a shame that you know he was on the pitch with, um, I guess the second string guys, you know, Bellerin, Pepe, Nelson, um, and all these guys. They were on banter in that game when they when they came on. I, I, I think yeah, that's that's why I, I did kind of feel sorry for him because if you think the amount of guys that were missing that game, so imagine if you had you know Ramsdale, White, Tierney, you know Nazinchenko, Vieira, you know it looks a lot different, you know, when you start playing with you know these sort of guys in it, so. Um, so I was quite, that's why I said after, on Saturday, after half time, I just turned off and I just went to sleep because I was like, I'm not interested in watching these men. I was like, when the other guys are fit, then I'll, you know, so hopefully to, tonight, well, early in the morning, we might have a potentially a, a better looking, you know, second string or road. However, I'll to choose this to do it anyway, just see more of the guys we want to see in it. So Yeah. And another one on this sort of winger issue, uh, someone says, do you think it'd be, so this is, at underscore M4F79. He says, to counteract our left-wing issue, do you think it would be a good idea to use Martinelli as a backup right-winger? Um, he was good against United away and Newcastle at home to get and get a starting quality left-winger. Not a fan of him hugging the left touchline. I think that's a possibility. You know, um, I don't mind Martinelli on the right. I think he had an, a really good performance in the League Cup as well last season. Um, from the right-wing, uh, on top of those two mentions. So, you know, if... You are going to go and spend big. Um, I think it makes sense to get a left winger who can play on the right as well, um, rather than a right winger, um, because you know Saka is going to be playing most of the games. I don't think you should spend big on someone who either will usurp him or be sharing minutes with him potentially. I think if you want to be sharing minutes, you'd want that to be in someone uh, who can play there, but wouldn't necessarily have to play a lot of games there. Um, because Saka is going to be playing the majority, so I think it does make sense to use Martinelli as a backup right winger. Go and sign, you know, potentially a starting quality um, left winger that can match Saka on that other side. It makes sense, and I think that's um, a lot of what 
uh, has been suggested, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's why we wanted Gnabry, do you know what I mean? You know, a winger who can comfortably play both sides, so can play with Saka, without Saka, you can rest him accordingly. Um, and obviously, another one, Stanley makes sense, you know, he can play on both sides comfortably, but so, but you know, those are top, top quality options we're talking about, which are just we're not at the level. I mean, Com Kingsley Coman would be another, you know, they're all these guys are at Bayern, do you know what I mean? All these sort of top, top level wingers, man. So, I don't know, man, I don't know. But yeah, um, just don't bring me no Jared Bowen. Don't bring me no Jack Harrison. I'm not trying to see those guys. You know, mm. maybe a young Pedro Neto. I can roll with that. I can run with that. I can play left wing, right wing. I'll be calm with that. You know. So yeah, that 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 Jack Harrison name name drop was kind of yeah, scary. I'm not trying to it was see that. Kind of scary for me. But <laughs> um, but yeah, that's uh, that's all the questions that we have today. So um, Sean, thank you very much. Just in time for Love Island as well. You know uh, how we do it strategically. See, you know, we're about to see about to see a dumping, you know. So um <laughs> so thank you very much for joining me. Um guys, thank you very much everyone who watched live and is listening on the Spotify. Uh, make sure you show us that love. Big up uh, Ben Jacobs again uh, for coming on. He was very, very insightful. Um and yeah, otherwise, guys, we'll catch you uh, on the flip side. I think Arsenal are playing tonight at uh, twelve thirty a.m. So um, by the time you're probably listening to this, uh, we will have played. So hopefully, uh, we batter uh, Orlando City um, very well, um, uh, and and we'll catch you guys uh, after that game. Uh, otherwise, peace. Network.